Well, let's do get started. Um, Jacob and Elizabeth are celebrating the birth of their child yesterday. So if you've seen the E! News, you've seen Hudson Michael's picture. They are doing well, expected to come home from the hospital tomorrow. Um, and they are thankful for the prayers and the support. So um, if you haven't seen in the E! News, it's there. Um, but uh, they're not with us, obviously, for that reason tonight. And we're starting off on hermeneutics. Okay. What I want to tell you is that hermeneutics is not a theological word on its own, but it is often practiced in regard to theology or understanding the Bible, the study of God. Okay, hermeneutics is simply interpretation or how to know what something means. Some of you have been uh, jokingly exhibiting your hermeneutics and understanding of a COVID vaccine card. Um, there's all sorts of things that we practice hermeneutics on a regular basis. You understand, uh, by and large, the difference in uh, a meme on the internet and what is expected to be true. Um, you understand that a newspaper article that is an opinion article, hopefully you understand that that is different than a dictionary entry or a scholarly journal. Um, we understand and practice different reading patterns. For those of you that are married, um, when your uh, spouse wrote you those love notes about how they were going to die if they didn't see you, you read that differently than you read reports about how someone can die from cancer. That's a practice of hermeneutics, the art and the science of interpretation. When it comes to biblical hermeneutics, we need to understand that. One of my favorite uh, examples of hermeneutics and things not being understand, understood well comes from one of our kids. One of our kids was a three or four-year-old. Uh, Lily made the remark that it was raining cats and dogs. Okay, Our is any, are any of you unfamiliar with that phrase? Like, that's maybe a southern phrase, but I think it's just an older phrase. They, they use it in the north. It, yep. All right, they use it in Jersey. <laughs> All right. She went running to the bay window to see what type of cats and dogs it was raining. <laughs> yes. It would be very messy with how high the rain comes from. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we've understood since then that raining cats and dogs does not mean that it is literally that there are furry things coming from the sky, but that it's raining really hard. Where on earth that phrase came from, I do not know. Okay. But we've learned and she has learned that concept. When we talk about biblical Hermeneutics. We talk about reading under, or understanding and studying and understanding the Bible. There's some passages in the Bible that I want us to look at first that show you the need for or the practice of, by and large, what we're going to be doing. So if you've got a Bible or you want to use a phone, you're welcome to do so. Um, but if you'll navigate with me to Ezra and Nehemiah to start off with, Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, is where we'll start.
Ezra chapter 7, verse 10 says this, that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules. What were the things, what do we see about Ezra here? You can recap the verse for us. What do we see about Ezra? What was his focus about God's word? Give me some observations. One of the first steps of uh, interpreting the Bible is observations. Give me some observations from Ezra 7.10. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules. It seems to be to find the rules and follow them. Okay. Teach others to do the same. Yep. So he wants to not only find it, the concept of study, and mind the truth, but he plans on obeying it. And he plans on replicating that in the lives of others. And he had set his heart. He had focused, his focused ambition and motivation was to know God's word, do God's word, and teach God's word. The the task of studying and understanding the Bible is something that should involve our heart, our mind, and our habits, um, our habits of study and our habits in practice. All right, just a couple pages over, make it from Ezra over to Nehemiah. Second shortest guy in the Bible. Second to Joshua the Shuhite, there is Nehemiah. Um, so that is now for, all right, Nehemiah 8.8. 8. People have discovered the, the word of the Lord. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. They read from the law of God clearly and gave the sense so that people understood the reading. What do we have happening here? Nehemiah's gathering. The people are gathered together, and instead of just reading it, they're trying to understand it. They have explanation. By and large, what was happening here in Nehemiah 8.8 is the basis for the way that we try to preach in our church. Reading from God's word and giving clear understanding of what is happening in it. That is our goal, to show what the word says in a way that our people can understand it. And ultimately, as Ezra did, apply it. Skip over to 2 Peter. Second Peter chapter three and verse sixteen. I'm gonna start in verse fifteen, the end of fifteen. As our beloved Paul, brother Paul, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. I believe we talked about this in our Doctrine of Revelation, but looking at how Peter speaks of what Paul wrote as part of scriptures. 
He compares it and he says, when you distort what Paul says, you're distorting it and twisting it to your own destruction just as they do other scriptures. Okay, so there's something there that speaks of what Paul write, was writing as scripture. But not only should we make efforts, and there are some things that are hard to understand in the Bible. The majority of the Bible is pretty clear and pretty simple. But when we start diving in, some things are harder to understand. For example, I, I think of the book of Revelation. It's really, really simple in two words. Jesus wins. It's really, really complicated when we start verse by verse, sentence by sentence, phrase by phrase, trying to understand every detail. There are some things in Scripture that are harder to understand. And yet, the ignorant and unstable twist them to their own destruction. So there's something to be said of understanding and obeying that brings the opposite of destruction. Or as Psalm 1 says, that when we walk in the counsel of the Lord and put our, war, our life meditating on the truths of Scripture, we experience the life that God intends for us. Okay? And when we resist and do not understand or twist Scripture, we do it to our own destruction. Or as I'll preach uh, two weeks for, or a week from this Sunday, when I'm preaching from Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. Not just eternal separation from God, but self-destruction. Sin is a life of self-destruction. Distorting scripture and not applying it rightly is a life of self-destruction bringing eternal destruction as well. And lastly, 2 Timothy 2.15, King James Version. For those of you that are Awana families and have heard your kids recite 2 Timothy 2.15, they always do it from the King James Version with Awana, and they always state the translation afterwards. So I felt it most appropriate, since this is the key verse for Awana, uh, to do it in the way that they would do it. But I'm going to read it from the ESV. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Awana stands for approved workmen are not ashamed. A approved workman, according to 2 Timothy 2, is one that can take the scripture and understand it and rightly divide it or rightly understand it and apply it. Okay? We need to be that type of people. We need to be the type of people that can open up the Bible on our own Spend time with God in it. Ask for the Holy Spirit's illumination and understand it and obey it. Um, we need to be approved workmen that are not ashamed. I want to walk through a few things here. I'm going to try to pause in a few minutes, but I'm going to try to walk through some stuff right here at the beginning. Um, tonight I want to talk focus on introducing hermeneutics. I want to give you a pre-commitments or what we should be committed to in our biblical hermeneutics. And then I want to talk about Bible translations. Why do we have the translations we have? What are the, the concepts behind those? That's what we're going for tonight. Next week, I will be teaching 
on beginning the, the beginning path of biblical interpretation. How do, we, how do we read from the Bible beginning to understand it? In future weeks, we're going to look at concepts such as uh, how do we understand the original context, the literature and the style of literature that it is, how that informs things. Why do we read Psalms differently than we do the Gospels? Why do we read Proverbs differently than we do the Epistles? Why do we read the book of Revelation the way that we do? We're going to look at the different genres of Scripture. We're going to look at the different uh, cultural contexts and see how that can inform some things. So we're going to go through a variety of things in the upcoming, I believe there's 17 or either 18 uh, lessons that we've got laid out. I'll be up these first two weeks, and then it'll either be Pastor Jacob or Pastor Sam for after that for a little while. So, um, But that's kind of the outline. I should have brought in the uh, each week outline, but I didn't do it, so I omitted that by uh, mistake. But I want to talk about commitments. What type of commitment should we have when we read the Bible? And by the way, this is a... This is on the basis of what we've understood of the Bible. Um, and there's this weird spiral where we're pre-committed to these concepts. But also, these concepts are taught by the Bible. But we see they're commit, we're, we're committed to them, and the Bible teaches them. And the Bible teaches them, so we're committed to them. But we're committed to them, so when the Bible teaches it, we believe it. But the Bible says we should believe it. I recognize that for some, that that is circular logic. Uh, I, I prefer the concept of a spiral rather than a circle, uh, where we're ever going deeper into in our trust and understanding of who God is and how he communicates. But I want to just acknowledge up front that I think there's some pre-commitments that the Bible determines we should have um, and that theology determines that we should have. And I want you to see the way that they play out uh, in our understanding of the Bible. So for the first, and I think this is a necessity, if you're going to read and understand the Bible, it probably comes from a position that you have a high view of the Bible. Okay? If you have no respect for the Scripture, if you don't have a high view of the sufficiency and the trustworthiness of God's Word, there's really no reason to study it. Because at that point, you can do as some of our historical forefathers of the United States have done, and in many cases, just take out the pieces that you want to take out and keep the other pieces that you want to keep. Because there, there's no point in studying the Bible. You just put your own ideas that you want to, find the words on the page, and cut them out. Over Christmas break, we played a game in our house where you had to spell, I believe it was the, the letters of your name, but you had to spell the letters of your name or your, your, your name and your teammate's name in this game by finding them on one item from your pantry. So we went to the pantry and grabbed a, a box of cookies. And Lily and I were playing together and she went through and she circled an M and an A and an M and an A for mama and a D and an A and a D, D and a Y. Somewhere, anywhere on this grand ingredient list for double chocolate cookies from Giant. Some people do the same thing with their philosophy and theology of life. Did those cookies ever say our name? Well, it depends on how you want to break that cookie package up. They never said mama. They never said daddy. They never said Jason. But they had the letters, and if you chopped them up just the right way, you could make them say whatever you wanted them to. You could probably make them even say these cookies are nasty, do not buy them. 
So also some people chop up their Bible to say whatever they want to say. That's an exercise in futility. You're just wasting your time to say what you already wanted to say. Why waste your time studying something that you don't believe is accurate or important? So I think for it even to be a logical task to study the Bible, you actually ought to have a high view of Scripture. But Scripture teaches us to have a high view of it as well. I want us to see what Jesus thought about Scripture. Well, one of you turn to Matthew 5, 17 and 18 and read it out for me in a minute. I'm already in 2 Timothy, so I'm going to stay there, and I'm going to get somebody else to uh, go to 2 Peter 1. So who's going to go to Matthew 5 for me? All right, Christopher, got you. Who's going to 2 Peter for me? Thank you, Beth. Okay. Wants to see what a high view of Scripture involves. Matthew 5 is uh, 17 and 18 gives us what Jesus believed about Scripture. So, uh, Christopher, you'll read that out for me. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So what did Jesus believe about the, about, about the Scripture or about the Bible or about the law? What did he believe about it and its corruptibility or it being uh, altogether right from this text? things one that it had endured to that point and it would endure forever and two that he fulfills it it's mm-hmm. about him yep. so it's him saying it's about me and it endures forever and nothing of it disappears like it doesn't have a time stamp expires on this date or done entirely away with or some parts are trustworthy and other parts are not And this is one of those texts that I would look at and say, Jesus believed that the Bible was accurate and that the Bible was true. And I am not arrogant enough to argue with him about that. And I'm not ignorant of what he thought was there. So, Jesus believed the Bible was true. That should be good enough for us. Scripture to validate that he later on John says I am the way the truth and the life and then John 1 literally says that the word became flesh mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah. Um, alright in 2 Timothy chapter 3 Paul writes to Timothy that all scripture is breathed out by God profitable for teaching reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work all scripture is breathed out by God comes from God, and all Scripture is profitable. And he goes on to, with teaching, and so what is right doctrine, reproof, what is wrong doctrine for correction, what is wrong behavior for training in righteousness, what is right behavior. All Scripture is profitable. It comes from God, as we talked about in our uh, doctrine of God last fall, that God is trustworthy, does not lie. And so if it comes from him, it must be truth. That doesn't guarantee, by the way, that we don't 
misunderstand things, and it doesn't guarantee that man always copied correctly and passed down what God has said correctly, but it does mean that what God said is true. If it comes from him, it must be true. And if scripture comes from him, it must be true. It is our task to understand what is scripture and what God did say then. Okay? Second Peter. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God. So the scriptures are men speaking from God as carried along by the Holy Spirit. And it's not a man book. So how did we get our Bible? Is our Bible a man-made invention? The Bible says no. Um, That it comes from God through man, recorded by original author, copied by scribes and copyists with meticulous accuracy, but still a mistake here and there preserved on various different manuscripts over time. And now it is the task of those that are compiling our translations to look at all the manuscripts and all the manuscripts and say, all right, here's what we have. Here's the pieces we have here. Here's the 5,000 pieces of evidence for these different tasks and to figure out what was originally said and recorded by the author who was inspired by or given the words breathed out by God through man's personality. So, When we approach Scripture, I think we should come because Scripture demands, but I also think to even make it a worthwhile task that we should see that Scripture demands and we should have a high view of Scripture. What the Bible says, God says. And what God says, we must believe and obey. The Bible is trustworthy. Now, we may spend some more time on this in a future week, Um, But since we're going to talk about understanding words and concepts, I want to be clear when I say that the Bible is trustworthy, that when the Bible is trustworthy, that still means that we got at times partial reporting from different perspectives. So Matthew sees something and presents what he saw. Mark sees something and presents what he saw. There's other times that things are paraphrased. There's other times that the authors are describing what they experienced from their perspective, not the scientific setting. For example, just as we say, Did you see the sunrise today? Did you see the sunset today? Do any of us actually think that the sun moved at this point? Well, there's a few NBA players that might think that, um, that also think the world is flat. But we know that we're just describing it from our perspective. So also, when the Bible talks about sunrise or sunset, they are describing it from their perspective and not giving a scientific statement on that. So that doesn't mean that the Bible has errors in it because it talks about the sunrise any more than we, we talk about seeing the sunrise, meaning that we have also lost our brains. No, that isn't the case. So when we talk about the Bible being trustworthy, we need to understand the ways that it is written. We need to understand for figures of speech as well, um, as we began with an example, okay? Not only do we need a commitment to a high view of Scripture, but we need a conviction of the profitability of Scripture, This is the passage we've already looked at that talks about how the scriptures are profitable. When we read them, study them, and apply them, they do something in us. They prepare us, they equip us, they lead us to a life that God would direct us in. By the way, this talks about all scripture being profitable. 
So what would I say? I would say that means that all of the Bible is profitable. I would not necessarily say that having today, for today's believer, that having the instructions on how to make the curtains for the temple is of equal value and importance to us as the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? If I'm going to be stranded on a desert island, deserted island with a desert island, that'd be terrible, even worse. Give me a tra- stranded on a tropical island, maybe not too bad, particularly on a day like today with winter. But you know, if I'm going to be stranded on an island, I'd rather have the Sermon on the Mount than a genealogy. But all Scripture is of value and accurate and important. All Scripture is profitable. But I wouldn't necessarily say, hey, again, genealogy versus an epistle. Give me Romans um, or the Sermon on the Mount, etc. No area is more inspired, but we can say some areas seem to be more important. For example... The resurrection account. That seems, Paul would be willing to say, of first importance. Okay. All right, thirdly, we need a calling to rightly divide the word of truth. The purpose of interpretation is making clear the meaning of the passage. We need to accurately divide and understand and teach for, to ourselves and maybe to others the meaning of the passage, which means we have a commitment to applying the scripture. James 1, through 25 talks about not being doers or not being hearers only of the word, but being doers who look intently into the law of liberty and obey what it says. We need to be committed to not just understanding the Bible and studying it intellectually, but applying it. As Danny Aiken in his hermeneutics class, I think it was him in his hermeneutics class notes says, we put the Bible under microscope that we might put our lives under the microscope of that text and then do what it says. By the way, much of my outline is from his note packet. Uh, That's available online. I give you where you can find that uh, in your further study section. He is the uh, president of the seminary that I attended, and he has taught this course numerous times and made it, uh, in many cases, available for free with some registration uh, type stuff. But this note packet's just available for free, no registration required. All right, he also says that we need a willingness to be confined by the intention of the author. Okay. I'm in 2 Timothy, continue to stay there, been in chapter 2, chapter 3, now chapter 4. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure teaching, sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. Right then, that middle, verse 3 and 4, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, having itching ears, desiring to accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Okay? To use the Bible to say what they want it to say, to start off with. 
right? This is, this is the example that I began with. We went into the pantry, we found the label, we found an ingredient that had a letter A in it, we, an M, an A, an M, and an A. We made it say whatever we wanted it to say. Some people use the Bible outside the intention of the human author or the divine author to say what they want it to say. The commitment of actually studying the Bible and not chopping it up letter by letter or one word here, one word there, or half a sentence here, half a sentence there, or even a, a paragraph here absent the rest of it is a willingness to be confined to the intention of the author. If the author's intention does not matter, there is no purpose in studying what it says. You can just make it say what you want it to. It is our commitment to understand what the human and divine author meant. So if it's outside the author's intent, it's outside the spirit's intent, and therefore it is outside the realm of divine authority. We need to be committed to what the author intended. And we'll talk a lot more about that in future weeks, okay? Wayne Grudem says that the Bible is understandable, but not all at once. Not without effort. Not without our, the reader's willingness to obey. Not without the help of the Holy Spirit. Not without human misunderstanding. Never completely. A lot of modifiers there, but that the Bible is understandable. It is understandable. It is understandable for us because we have translations. Do any of you in here speak at like a level 100, you know, level one, another language? Tom, are you maybe maybe basic level? Can you can have a you know my my version of Spanish is I can ask you how are you doing? I'm doing well. I can recall some vocab. You know, uh, there's there's 200 words in the language that you know, type of thing, uh, and can recognize. Okay, if you have studied a language and forgotten most of it, as I have done with multiple, okay, what you may remember is that in many languages, things don't always translate directly in the same word order. So there's phrases, there's concepts. We need the Bible translated. And we're going to talk about the phrases and the concepts and the translations of it in a minute. Okay? But by the way, your Bible was not written in English. It wasn't even written in these and thous of 1611 KJV English. Okay? The Bible was written in Three languages. All right. Somebody give me the first one. Hebrew. Second. Third. Aramaic. All right. There are small portions of Daniel and I believe Ezra that contain some Aramaic. Um, so now I want to talk you through translations for a minute because none of us in the room speak fluently or read fluently and think in those languages. Um, some of us have studied those more than others. I have forgotten my languages very well. Um, I've forgotten them almost as well as I studied them. Um, I still recall some things. I still work through it, but I do not work from 
their original text on any given week and work through that. I look at commentaries with scholars that spend a lot of time almost every day in the languages. Um, and I work through their familiarity and their trust in that. And I look at a variety of different ones, but I do not start with the Hebrew. Um, I could not start with the Hebrew at this point. It would take me a while to start back with the Greek. Um, I could get there, um, but it wouldn't take me nearly as long as the Hebrew. And I know no Aramaic. Okay. Um, which means we need translations. Okay. But not only do we need translations, we need to understand what's going on in them because communication is not as easy as it appears. How many of you have had a, a conversation with your spouse and you have not understood or they have not understood what you were clearly telling them? Okay, we've all been there. there there's no point to throw that elbow right now. Okay, I'm far enough away from my wife that I can avoid that elbow, but maybe not the daggers from the eyes. Okay. If communication between two individuals sitting in the same room, in the same culture, can be hard to understand, how much more difficult is it when you speak the same language as somebody, but they come from a different country? Not just a north-south of the United States thing, okay? But fish and chips is a different dish in England than it is here. Okay. There's a variety of things in the same language, but different speech patterns in addition to accents. It's more difficult to speak the same language, or sorry, a different language in the same century, much less 2,000 years apart. So when we think about the way that the Bible was written over a period of 1,000 plus years, the newest part being 2,000 years old, give or take, in a language and a culture that we are not in. There's a lot of things that we must be doing to understand. And thankfully, scholars have done the most insurmountable work for most of us of doing translation. Okay? But when you do translation, whether you were translating as marvelously as the Hispanic ministry was uh, for Pastor Salazar a couple weeks ago, whether you're doing your rudimentary translation uh, of a phrase on your own from your, your language 101 studies, your Spanish 1 study, or German, or French, or whatever it was that you took at some point when you were first realizing that not every language puts the subject before the verb or the, uh, the adjective before the noun, etc. You've got to reverse the order. Which way does this go in? Translation is not as simple as word for word. It doesn't just go word for word. There's phrases in different languages. I've been working through my Spanish and trying to brush up on it. I got a little app on my phone and they'll, they'll regularly give me phrases. And I'm like, what does that mean? I can translate it literally, but I have no concept uh, of what it means from there. Okay. Also, English has that, though. We, I shared earlier the concept of raining cats and dogs. You know, non, right now uh, on the first floor, our English as a second language students are learning maybe some English phrases. I'm sure that if you went into them and said, this is easy as cake, they'd be, huh? What does that mean? What does it mean to be over the moon? 
What does it mean to steal someone's thunder? Like, I mean, can you imagine just translating that and teaching that to somebody? So also, those phrases of language are not just an English thing. For example, earlier today, I learned that there's a, in Spanish, there's a phrase that literally means you're so lazy that you work less than Tarzan's tailor. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and I don't, I don't remember the phrase. Um, okay, there's all sorts of different ones. I think it was in uh, in some version of like the Irish cultures that there's a phrase that we would understand to mean it's a small world. Like, hey, I encountered you. What what's the odds of that? But the phrase literally translates as imagine finding a lobster here. Okay, there's just every culture has its phrases that do not mean literally what the words taken on their own mean. So when we start thinking about how to translate the Bible, scholars are largely divided into two camps with a, with, with a extreme continuum, you know, them running both sides on it. There, some people would say three. I'm okay, and I've actually listed three. But basically two camps. One where you translate every word for the exact word. Okay? So when we run into the Abba, we say Father. Or when we run into Charis, we talk about grace or gift. We can translate it word for word. But also there is the school of thought that at times phrases and thoughts are actually where the meaning is located. Because as I shared earlier, imagine finding a lobster here. is not intended to actually talk about a lobster. It's talking about what are the odds of us gathering together in a small place. The world's small. You're lazy. That's the intended meaning. You're as inactive as Tarzan's tailor is the literal wording. So also, when Bible scholars are translating and giving translations of the Bible, they have to pick how wooden and literal are they going to be word for word at the risk of miscommunicating the concept or how thought for thought are they going to be at the risk of missing the word and the concepts of the words. So I want to walk you through a a little bit of the the strengths and the the thoughts of the translation ideas here. So I believe on your note package you've got that the first one listed there is a literal or a formal translation theory, a literal or a formal, what are the exact words? What do they mean? And what it says is what I'm going to mean. Or what, what, it, what it says and what it, what it says is what I'm going to say. I'm going to take the word from the Greek, determine exactly what that word means, and put that word in English. When we get over to the dynamic or functional, it's thought for thought. 
disregarding the meaning of the individual words by and large to capture the concept of the thought being conveyed. Then on the further end beyond that, to me, it's, you, you could argue easily that it's still in there is the concept of a paraphrase, where a paraphrase is an extreme thought for thought that tries to get rid of all historical distances with little concern for the original words. So what it might do is if the Bible's talking about a city known for its sin, it might, if it was trying to give us an Americanized paraphrase, describe Las Vegas. Instead of Babylon... Or instead of Sodom and Gomorrah, Vegas would be your paraphrase. Who are you who goes to Vegas thinking no one knows what you do? As opposed to who are you? you know, God sees you, literal, God sees the sin of the people of Sodom. Paraphrase, okay? my, my made up example there. A, a dynamic or a functional thought for thought is somewhere in that middle. Might say God sees the sins of the sinful cities. It might retain the historical Sodom, um, but it might convey the thought concept as opposed to the word concept, okay? What are the strengths, you think, of a word-for-word translation philosophy? What strengths can you think of? Or I'll go ahead and give you the opportunity. What weaknesses of that could you come up with? You actually know the word that was used in that situation. The weaknesses you might interpret Okay. not based on language. Yep. Strengths, you can know the word. It, it does, by and large, a word for word does a very good job conveying the tense and whether it's past tense, present tense, future tense, whether it's accomplished action, who is the one that is as passive or active, by and large, it does a good job with that. Okay. It, when we, but one of the weaknesses, sometimes we misunderstand. What does it mean to stand before God's face? What does it mean for him to, Lift up his face. Right? There's some phrases of scripture that if you've studied the Bible for a really long time, you might know what they mean, but try telling them to your kids. And they're like, huh? That doesn't make sense at all. Right? So if you've studied it enough, you already know what it means because you've had that built into your brain what it means and you read it now and you're like, oh, no brainer. Everybody else should just totally understand the Bible like I do. But it's because you've got years of habitual study that has helped you work through the meaning behind that word-for-word -word translation because that's not the way by normal people speak. Every now and then you run into somebody that speaks King James English still. Um but most people don't speak that way. But they read the Bible and understand it differently. So they've just taught their brains, when I see this in the Bible, I'm going to read it differently than I do anywhere else. Uh, by the way, a literal translation will often put in italics a word that it is supplied that is not actually in the original text or the manuscripts 
but that they have put there so that you can understand meaning. Okay? So if you've got a Bible and you've got words in italics, most of the time it's because that word is not in the original text, but it is conveyed so that you have a sense of meaning when you read the sentence. Okay? All right, we've, we've talked about some of the weaknesses there. Um, by the way, uh, right, let's go down to thought for thought. What's the value? Where is a thought for thought translation valuable? Or where is it weak? I think in agape, like mm -hmm. love. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's four different words for love mm -hmm. in the New Testament. So I think it, that, I mean, sure, it's great when we want to talk about love, but when you spiral then what type of love are we talking about? Are we talking about the love between, you know, brothers? Right. Friends? Companions? I mean, right. And, you know, one of the, the challenges of that is uh, the ways in which they can be used, the way they can be interchangeably used at times. But, all right, how does that contribute to, uh, you know, what's the, what's the weakness of thought for thought or the strength of a thought for thought translation philosophy? I think a weakness is that it relies on the person doing the translating. They're injecting whatever they're bringing. In. So mm -hmm. that's the weakness. The strength is that it's easier for you to understand because it's stripped of all historical, yeah. I don't know, some sort of anachronism or something mm -hmm. like that. So when in a couple of months, when we get to Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, um, I might just make Jacob, Sam, and Ron preach it when I'm sabbatical on sabbatical because it's going to be hard to understand, hard to preach, and it conveys a lot of theology there. Um, the way in which some of those phrases are translated in a dynamic or a thought-for-thought -thought translation often unintentionally or intentionally conveys the theology of the translator. Okay. Not just in those passages, but throughout the Bible. When you start going, instead of word for word, thought for thought, you're going to start giving your theology. Okay. So I think that's one of the weaknesses of it, is you're, you are biting off on pre-digested theology when you're reading from a thought for thought translation. It's pre-processed food for you. Okay. What is a strength, though? Much more readable. Much more readable. Right? It's much more uh, uh, easy to comprehend. It's much uh, simpler for a child, even for adults. Um, and there are some phrases that unless we have studied the Bible for a really long time, we don't know what they mean. Okay? For example, at this point, I have used the word propitiation a good bit in my sermons. So some of you can define propitiation. But there's a lot of people, a lot of Christians, that would prefer to read from a translation that doesn't talk about God, Christ as our propitiation, but Him as our atoning sacrifice. That just skips the word but conveys the concept. 
Is that acceptable? Well, is it best to learn it? You know, is it best to learn the, the root of all the way that, that that word on its own is rooted in the Jewish sacrificial system and all of that? Yeah, it's best to learn it, but it's a whole lot faster. So in a microwave culture, a thought for thought has a lot of value. And by the way, you know, listen, there's a whole lot of things that are really well served out of the microwave that, that still are good. It doesn't always replace the crock pot or the grill or every kitchen utensil, but sometimes it's the best tool for the job. Um, sometimes a dynamic or a thought-for-thought thought translation, I think, is the best tool for the job. By the way, the weakness of pre-digested theology and a thought-for-thought thought is also actually happening in a word-for-word. Okay. Many in the word-for-word camp say, well, the problem with the dynamic and the thought-for-thought, I'm never going to read from those because I just want to get my own theology from what I read and understand the Bible to say. Even in word-for-word, it is not so wooden, and there is not only one-for-one correspondence. Just as in English, the same word can mean different things in different situations, there is still word-for-word theologizing happening in the other. Paraphrases, try to eliminate the historical distance. Okay? I think all of these can have value. I'll talk a bit at, at the end about picking a Bible translation. But for a minute, I want to give you a quick overview of some translations, mainly concentrating on the English. Okay? But first, the Septuagint. If you do a lot of uh, biblical studies, you will see the abbreviation LXX, or for 70 in the Roman numerals. Um, it is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament was written uh, largely in Hebrew, small portions in Aramaic, and the Septuagint is the Greek translation of those manuscripts dating back to the 3rd century B.C. Paul likely would have used it. Okay? The Vulgate, heard that earlier. The Vulgate is a Latin, or the Latin translations dating back to the Jerome of the 4th century. It's been updated somewhat uh, throughout time. Okay. That's another word that you'll hear. Those are both outside English. I don't want to spend a lot of time there. All right, first Bible uh, into Middle English was from Wycliffe in 1382. It was a translation not from the original languages. It was a translation from the Vulgate. He did not have the manuscripts or manuscripts of Greek and, uh, Greek and Hebrew. He worked from the Latin. He was condemned as heretical. The copies were burned. Things did not go well for him. That's the record pretty much of the first 200 years of Bible translators working on English translations um, or from the mid-1300s all the way until the Protestant Reformation. Um, it did not go well for Bible translators because... The, I guess the, the concept was you can't put the Bible in the hands of the people. Um, it's too dangerous. We will rid our religious institutions of their control, and it will not be good. Okay? Things began changing with the 16th century, with the renaissance of classical learning. Uh, the Greek, when Constantinople fell, the Greeks moved west. They start studying the languages and they work on the Greek. Gutenberg puts out the printing press. The Protestant Reformation's fundamental principle to a large degree was putting the Bible in the hands of the people. Okay? 
Justification by faith in the Bible in the hands of the people because people need to be able to see what's being done here with the Bible and and see it for themselves and understand it instead of just handing what was taking what was handed down to them. So in 1525, we've got Tyndale with the first printed English New Testament from the original languages, not the whole Bible, printed English New Testament. By the way, he was a contrarian figure who, instead of just translating the Bible, also liked to leave lots of derogatory remarks about the religious establishment along with his translation work. And since that was already not in favor, and then you write bad things about the people in power, they don't like you and they get rid of you. So that's the way that goes. That's the church history version, okay? The Coverdale Bible in 1535 is the first complete English Bible of the 16th century. The Geneva Bible in 1560 um, it was particularly uh, influential. It was uh, one described as the Shakespearean Bible. It was just well-received. Uh, but in 1543 in England, the Parliament had made it a cl- crime for unlicensed people to read the Bible publicly and for the lower classes to read it at all on their own. Okay, that changed at some other point. Obviously, by the time we get to 1611, we get King James' version of the Bible which, by the way, was resisted vigorously upon its original offering. Nobody wanted it. Nobody liked it. We don't want this thing. But there were no marginal notes. He didn't critique the religious authority or the secular authorities really throughout and offer his own commentary on how society was supposed to be. So it ended up being um, chosen and accepted. There were a few notes on the explanation of select Hebrew and Greek words, but it ended up winning out because the less theological notes, the Geneva Bible was packed with uh, Calvinistic theology and explanatory remarks. And so the lack of theologizing ended up winning out. Um, It was a good translation in particular for its time, but it worked from about, if I'm remembering right, about six manuscripts, Um, most of which were written within a couple hundred years of 1611, not within a couple decades of the original Bible um, being given. Since then, we found manuscript evidence, thousands upon thousands of fragments and big pictures, pieces of scripture to back up things, which is going to be one of the things I want to talk about on the KJV for a minute. Okay. I think the KJV was a marvelous translation for 1611, but if you've got 5,000 plus pieces of evidence, I think you should look at more evidence if we need to know what the original actually said rather than something that was written 1,000 years after for your manuscript evidence, 1,000 years after it was originally given. So I think the KJV was marvelous. It's amazing how accurate it still is to have evidence that's only that far removed and that little. Um, But we got a lot more evidence now. The KJV, other reason I don't use the KJV is it uses archaic language. Nobody speaks in those terms today. Okay, it's almost a different language. Just as I would not hand our Hispanic brothers and sisters my English Bible and say, learn English to learn the Bible, I wouldn't hand a kid a KJV and say, you need to understand what this says so that you can understand the Bible. It's a different language. By the way, We don't use, most people don't use the KJV 1611. There was revisions to the KJV all the way through 1769. And many versions have that type of language. The new King James Version started not with all of the manuscript evidence, but started by and large where the KJV was, updating the language of it, but not necessarily going back to the original manuscripts. Okay. The New American Standard Version is claimed by some, and it looked at itself to be a revised of the revision of the ASV, but it did go back and look at all of the manuscripts and consulted things there. 
Um, Catholics, by the way, from my understanding, continue to only go from the Vulgate, the Latin translation, until 1943, when they could actually go back to the Greek and Hebrew to develop a translation. So, variety of different things. I give you something on why, we, why I use the ESV, why our church uses the ESV. I think it's a good translation. Um, ultimately, I switched personally from the New American Standard Bible to NASB to the ESV because I realized that bookstores weren't selling NASBs and I wanted our people to be able to get a hold of what I preach from. So I switched to the ESV because I didn't think it was that much of a change. So, um, good rules for choosing a translation here. Find one that's in modern English and you can understand. If you can't understand it, it's, it's very, very futile in studying it. Make it something that's understandable. Work on reading comprehension, absolutely, but make it understandable. It should be something that's based on the best Hebrew and Greek texts because if God said it through a human author recorded on something as the original, then we need to, and that is where the authority and meaning is, then we need to be as faithful as possible to what a God originally said to the human author of Scripture, which means that we ought to be looking at the best manuscript evidence that we can. Okay? And by the way, that also should involve translators that have a knowledge of the culture because some things are cultural. I think it's a good pr practice to choose a translation from a committee of people and not an individual. So even if I was the best Bible scholar in the history of the world, best scholar of New Testament languages, you should not be studying my translation from the Greek because there are multiple scholars that help at working as a committee can help better understand and preserve them, uh, or keep you from just getting their pre-digested theology, even in a word-for-word. Word. Translators that are working on a committee are better than one that's working on their own. One did not have errors, but two, you're gonna catch theology. But if you got a committee, this is a good use of a committee. Okay. All right, and lastly, find a Bible that fits your purpose. Listen, I'm not gonna preach from a paraphrase. I don't mind reading a paraphrase, but I'm not gonna study to preach from a paraphrase. I'm going to study to preach from a word-for-word -word translation, maybe looking at some paraphrases, examining what the original language has said and the way that they say it um, in a variety of ways. But I'm not going to preach from a paraphrase, though I gain from them. Um, I enjoy periodically reading from a different translation. Um, I have a, uh, a friend that I'm aware of. I'm aware of somebody that said, you know what, I make it my goal to just read a different, every year when I read the Bible in a year, I'm going to read it in a different translation because I want it to see how it hits me differently as I do so. But they're not going to give up studying from a tight translation. Um, so I did not uh, save the time to work through all this, but I want to do two things before we wrap up. I'm going to go until about 8.0, I'm going to go back to about 8.05, um, another five minutes. You got here a chart, a English Bible overview. I thought this was a good chart that kind of shows you where the various different translations kind of are loosely based, where they're heavily based, the way that things were developed. It was a neat and fascinating chart, um, so I, I put it out there for you. It's an English Bible overview. Um, the other thing that I did that we, if we were going to take another 15 minutes, we were going to actually walk through. Um, oh, and it shows you along the line of word for word to thought for thought for where different translations are. 
Um, so, for example, the NASB, the ESV, the NIV, the New Living, further down on the thought for thought beyond that, and some would put in a paraphrase, would be a message or something like that. Okay? So, but oh, I was going to walk us through and let us look at the variety of different translations of 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, and let you kind of take one that's from there somewhere in the middle, one that's kind of on the left side, one that's on the right side, and compare them. I also wanted to walk you through this interlinear Bible translation from 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Um, that kind of looks weird. If you're not looking, used to looking at this, this is weird. It looks weird. It's different. This is why you can't just translate word for word. What you have here is 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 with the Greek word, the transliterated Greek, you have the, the Greek words there, you have the meanings there, then you have the grammar there. On top of that, those are Strong's Concordance numbers. This is from Bible Hub, I believe. Yeah, BibleHub.com. It's got a good interlinear if you ever want to play with that and look at it. But here's what this first verse actually would read if we just take the word and translate the word. This, however, realize that in, that in last days will be present times difficult. Okay. That's somewhat understandable. Okay. Will be for men, lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive to parents, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, implacable, slanderous, without self-control, savage, without lovers of good, without love of good, treacherous, reckless, puffed up, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but, uh, and then I lost it, but it's going to be denying beyond that. Okay. You, it's somewhat wooden. This, there's actually other passages that it's going to be more wooden than this. Um, but here you go. This, however, realize that in, in last days will be present times difficult. Okay? We want to put that together a little bit differently. Realize this, however, that in the last days, difficult times will be present. Now, there's ways that the Greek can emphasize things. There's ways that the Greek, by the word order and those types of things, which is why sometimes that the, it's not kept in word for word order, but to rearrange, um, to make it fit into English sentence structure while trying to prioritize the, what the text prioritizes. So translators do not have a super easy task. That's why you can't go literal word for word on translation and it's not going to fit into English.